Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, I am a church planting resident here at Sojourn, which means that I'm in preparation to start a new church, a pastor in training, so to speak. And it's a joy, an honor to be with you, uh, preaching God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, we are working through a series through this book, uh, and today we're looking at the first half of chapter 6. Uh, and the driving subject of this text, uh, I think, is that there are two kingdoms coinciding at Corinth, two different kingdoms in the same place at the same time. There's the kingdom of this world with its earthly rulers, uh, its earthly wisdom, earthly uh, principles, earthly priorities. And then there's also the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven with its heavenly King Jesus, heavenly wisdom, heavenly principles, heavenly priorities. And because of what Jesus did in his life, death and resurrection, the kingdom of God has broken in and continues to break into the world through the church. It's almost fair to say that I think uh, that this is Paul's point throughout this whole letter, in fact, throughout the entirety of his writings in the New Testament. Uh, really understanding, wrapping our minds around uh, and living out the, our identity as the kingdom of God, which has broken into the present world. This is all Paul talks about, really. Uh, and far from only being applicable back when it was first received, uh, which it, of course, certainly was, what Paul's talking about here in chapter six, I think is very applicable to us. Uh, and, and we'll see what he's talking about. And let me say this, um, before I jump into the text, um, I think it would be helpful to understand just kind of a, the big picture vision of the church. Uh, in brief, I wanna say, so there's a pastor named Greg Thompson uh, who gave a set of talks recently at a conference called Q. Uh, and that's actually the name of a podcast, Q, the letter Q, Q Ideas. I highly recommend it. I'm probably gonna post a video to the email uh, this week. Um, but he gave, Greg Thompson gave a ser series of talks called A Way Forward, Six Practices of the Church. And what he's talking about um, is uh, how the church can rethink and reimagine herself in her role as God's faithful presence of light and love in the world. Uh, because there's a lot of things, a lot of times, a lot of swinging that the church is doing and a lot of missing um, in many ways. And so he says it's time to rethink things, get back to these six practices um, which he's seen throughout church history. And I wanna give the way that he introduced, I'm gonna summarize the way he introduces this time because it's a beautiful picture. Picture with me a woman who lives anywhere from the second to 16th centuries. So it's a long period of time, but it's before modernity. The picture of a woman uh, in the vicinity of the Mediterranean, which could be anywhere in the Middle East, probably as far east as Iraq, uh, throughout Europe, throughout North Africa, uh, on the south. Uh, so the Mediterranean world, she lives here, second to 16th centuries, and because of some terrible turn of events, she's forced to make a journey across the known world to some faraway destination. So she wraps herself in a cloak, picks up as many possessions as she can, as she can carry. She sets off. Day after day, exhaust, as exhaustion sets in toward the end of the day, she's really looking for one thing, a church. It could be a huge cathedral, could be a small local parish, could be a monastery with walls around it but she was looking for a church. And that's because of all the things that she could have known about the church. The thing that she most certainly did know was that the church was a place whose very purpose was to be a light in the darkness, a rest for the restless, a presence in all the absences of the world. And in fact, most of these churches uh, for a long time had manuals for what it looked like to receive guests. They actually had written codes of conduct for how you should interact with guests. One example from the Benedictine rule said this, said, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ, 
For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers or sisters are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. The abbot, the one in charge, shall pour water on the hands of the guest and the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor and pilgrims because in them more particularly is Christ received. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? They had these codes of, and there's all kinds, that was chapter 49, I think, of the Benedictine rule. They had all these ways of living life as the presence of God, the faithful presence of light in the world. People, the, the point that Greg Thompson was making is that people were looking for us. People were looking for the church. And when they found the church, they found personal care for their intimate needs. Right? They found hospitality. They found true fellowship. They found joy in the warm food that they were served, in the replenished provisions they had as they embarked the next day. And that's just individual concern. But the world also found in the church, in the church public concern. Now, these were communities of men and women concerned, not just for individuals, but entire cities. Right? Christians were... Uh, men and women who were the first to establish institutions for the moral and intellectual formation of children for the sake of the good of all of their neighbors, right? The church pursued advances in economics, law, art, music, all not just for themselves, but for the good of all of their neighbors. The church was characterized by love and the world around knew that. And so they looked for us. People looked for help. They asked for it and they received it. They looked for faithful presence in the face of the absences of the world Today, while the absences people face may look different than they did back then, they're in an ultimate sense really no different um, than what the absences of the world have always been. Absences within the world have always been opportunities for the church to come alongside our fellow human beings with the presence of God, shining the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. And so that's, he, he goes on that's, uh, uh, to, to, to say that much more beautifully and thoughtfully. Uh, than, I, than I do, and so I encourage you to listen to it. But Greg Thompson's getting at this idea that the church has a high calling to be a presence in the face of absence, to be a light in the darkness. And at Sojourn, this really is no different from our vision. Right? At Sojourn, our vision is not, we don't see ourselves doing anything new or novel. We just see ourselves joining in with what God has been doing for the past 2,000 years, shining the light of the gospel into a dark world, engaging with the world as thoughtful, sacrificial, loving ministers of reconciliation, reconciling the world to God as we love God and love our neighbors in word and deed. In our neighborhood parishes, we wanna foster the kind of families that of all things that could be known about us, could be known as families that people can come to find love, hospitality, and care for their needs. And not only do we want our parishes to be relational spaces where people can come, we also want to be parishes, families that mobilize and send one another into the world, go out to people who aren't even looking for God, who aren't even looking for other people to help them meet their needs. We want to unite and go to work together for the public good. We want to engage in our places of work, engage with our neighbors, with our partners, for the flourishing of the city around us. Our driving desire at Sojourn is to bring true, loving gospel community the very presence of God to the world around so that people's lives can be transformed as God wins more and more souls to himself and ultimately so the world can be transformed as all these transformed souls are really pushing for the transformation of our cities and our society and the very world itself. It's a huge vision. (laughs) And it's a beautiful vision. This is what we want to do. Um, And the reason it's so beautiful is because we didn't write it. (laughs) 
It's what God has been doing the whole time. In fact, it's the reason that you and I were created, like with work faith, the work faith connection, right? We were created for work. Nathaniel just talked about this. And when we can't work the way that we should work, something's wrong. Similarly, when we are not in line with this vision, this pushing back the forces of darkness, we're not living in line with what God has created us to do. When we begin to grasp this vision, that this is God's desire for the world through his Holy Spirit-filled church, then we will begin to understand just how big of a deal it is when things arise that threaten to quench this fire. Uh, Paul, in these early chapters of 1 Corinthians 6, looks at the church and says, your actions are getting in the way of your vision. The way that you're living is making it so that people are not seeing the distinctive, beautiful love of God At this point in the letter, Paul's riled up. Uh, We've had sermons over the past few weeks talking about some of the other issues that Paul's addressing. Uh, And today, Paul looks at one thing. He looks at these lawsuits that the Corinthians have been bringing against one another. uh, And then he zooms out toward the end of the passage of this this excerpt to explain to the Corinthians that what they've been called to is far greater than what they've grasped up to this point. And so what's the problem? Let's look at verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so right off the bat, Paul uh, introduces us to the driving subject of the text. There's two groups of people Paul refers to in this verse. He refers to the unrighteous and then the saints, you and each other. The Corinthians are saints, which means that they're the righteous ones, that they have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, which means they've been transferred from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of of heaven. That's what Paul has in mind when he calls them saints. These saints are taking their grievances to the law courts of the unrighteous. What does Paul mean by unrighteous? The unrighteous are just the opposite. They're people who don't believe in Jesus. Not Christians. They don't represent Christ. They're not representatives of the new humanity. They're representatives of the kingdom of this world. And so immediately Paul brings up these two kingdoms. And to make, I guess, two caveats. First, In referring to those outside the church as unrighteous, Paul is not talking about anything other than righteousness. He's not saying this is, they they have no intellectual capacity to live life. You and I probably know many people who aren't Christian who are much more intellectually capable than you and I are, right? Paul's not talking about intellectual capacity or any inherent kind of worthiness or abilities that they have. He's simply talking about the fact that they, through no good of their own, have received the grace of God and have been transferred from the the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven. Second caveat uh, that I'll make is that Paul's not talking here about whether or not they're, un- they're corrupt judges. Unrighteous, Paul's not immediately saying, oh, it's just because they're just corrupt. Uh, we do know that these courts are notoriously unjust. Right, to clarify, at the end of verse two, we're told that these are trivial cases, which means that they're relatively small issues. These are, for if, you're, if you know legal terms, this is civil suits, not criminal suits. Uh, criminal prosecutions. And in the Roman system, it was no secret that these small claims courts were thoroughly corrupt. Roman society was a society that rewarded power and privilege. uh, And these small claims courts were one of the clear places where the divide between power and powerlessness was was clearly evident. The rich won in their civil cases because they were able to bribe the judges. They were patrons of the judges, right? And the poor lost. So it was obviously problematic for Paul that the Corinthians were going to these corrupt courts against one another. He'll go on to say, verse eight, he writes, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That's, I think, what he has in mind there. But um, while that's a problem, that's not Paul's main point here in referring to these courts as courts of 
the unrighteous. Right? The, next, uh, the, the difference, I think, between the saints and the unrighteous, not intellectual capacity, not even a corrupt justice issue. It's an issue of two completely different kingdoms. And the Corinthians confusing their kingdom citizenship. The next two verses, which are essentially parallel to each other, uh, together make a strong statement. The two do you not know questions kind of highlight Paul's incredulity at what's he, what he's seeing. Uh, to illustrate, there's this scene um, in a TV show that my wife and I watched. I'm not going to give you the name of it because I can't endorse the TV show, at least not from the pulpit. Very funny. But um, there's this, this scene, uh, there's this very rich family who's lost everything uh, with adult, adult sons and adult daughter and adult son. Um, they've been spoiled their whole life. They have no idea how to live in the world outside of with mommy and daddy's money. And, uh, and this whole family loses all of their money and has to go to this small town uh, and make do with nothing. And so the son, this adult son, goes and gets a job. And because he has a job, he's able to get a credit card. And in this scene, he's just kind of going around swiping the credit card like crazy. He comes home with new stuff every day. And his sister and his parents are like, where are you getting this stuff? He says, ah, oh, I got a credit card. Yeah, but where are you getting this stuff? Just put it on my credit card. Um, and the funny, the joke in the scene, of course, is the fact that he is completely ignorant to what a credit card is, right? Because a credit card, and, and, and what made it so funny um, is that what he was missing was not like some tertiary thing in the credit card, like, uh, what do you call it, credit card contract. He wasn't missing some obscure detail. Uh, central to what a credit card is, is the fact that you can buy something and tell the person, I'm not going to pay, but you can have good faith that I'm going to pay you later. That's, what a credit, that's, what, that's credit kind of defined. And he was missing this. He didn't realize that he would, have, he would have to pay later, right? If all you have to do is swipe a piece of plastic and get something shiny, sure, do it. But if you have to pay later, that will inform how you use the credit card today. And it's similar, I think, with the kingdom of heaven. There are eternal implications for how we live our lives today. Right? What you do, uh, we, we preached on this a couple weeks ago. This is the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Right. What you do in this life matters, and it will resonate for all eternity. And this is not some tertiary thing to understand. Right? This is not like a side, like, like, okay, you get in the kingdom, and if you have time, worry about the fact that your actions affect eternity. No, for Paul, this is central. This is axiomatic, um, as one commentator put it. This should not have escaped the attention of the Corinthians as a cardinal element in their thinking. Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? He's getting at the fact that what he's talking about is basic and central. And here's what he says. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Briefly, what does this mean? What does Paul mean when he says these things? There's a lot that could be said about this. Justin would love me to preach the whole rest of the sermon on these two verses. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say two things, a word of caution and then a positive statement. First, it's clear elsewhere in the Bible that Christ himself is the judge of all things which means that we should not read this verse to mean that each Christian is a judge of the world as an independent individual. In other words, when Paul says we are to judge the world and we are to judge angels, you should not come away with a puffed up idea that when you get to the new heavens and new earth, there's gonna be a throne that has been empty waiting for you to come sit and all of the heavenly hosts will breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God he's here or she's here because now someone can actually exact judgments. Right? That's an exaggerated illustration, of course. But um, the reason, my point in saying that is that as Westerners, as Americans, we can tend to read these texts individualistically and we must not do that with this passage. Right? We, uh, as individual judges, are not God's plan for heaven. 
And we as individual judges are not God's plan for the earth right now. So what Paul's not saying, hallelujah, amen. Uh, what Paul's not saying is that we all, when you get transferred, you get handed a driver's license with the endorsement judge, right? That's not, that's not what Paul is getting at. Okay, so let me caution us against that. With that said though, let me say this. It's also clear in the Bible that the church is the body of Christ and that in our union with Christ, which involves being raised with Christ, Ephesians 2, into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in our union with Christ, we have been brought into all that is Christ's. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter three, Paul says this, he says, all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's an incredible statement. All is yours, which means no less than the fact that we have been made co-heirs with Christ and sharers, therefore, in his heavenly reign. So Christ is reigning and ruling right now and we are reigning and ruling with him. That's what that means. You might remember a few times we've sung the song a couple weeks ago, Is He Worthy? It's a new, relatively new song, Call and Response. Uh, and there's a line in that song that says, he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the son. That's <laughs> a beautiful line. That wording comes from Revelation 4, uh, excuse me, Revelation 5, Revelation 1, 1 Peter 2. That wording's throughout the Bible. We are a kingdom of priests. We reign with the son. The idea that we are the body of Christ is not just a metaphor. It is to be understood literally. Right? We are literally the dwelling place for God by the spirit. We are where the spirit of God dwells. My spirit dwells in my body. Christ's spirit dwells in his body, which is you and me, brothers and sisters. Christ is at work in the world through us. Thus, even in this world, we are the instrumental means by which Christ executes his judgments, by which Christ is pushing back and actually doing the business of his kingdom. That's you and me in the church. In our corporate reality as the body of Christ, the church is able to judge in community as a true reflection of the actual character of Christ. This is incredible, <laughs> nearly incredible. Now, we can see why this is such a big deal for Paul. Right? We reflect Christ. We've been entrusted with this heavenly reign. So let us take care to do so faithfully and well. If this is true, surely, right? If this is, if this is true, then surely, verse two, you are competent to try these trivial cases. This is true. Surely then, verse three, if you are to share in the heavenly judgment with Christ in the eternal age to come, then you are quite qualified to render judgment on things pertaining to this life. Because all things are yours, whether in the present or the future, in this life or the next, all things are yours. And think about it. If we're talking about two different kingdoms, this means that we're talking about two completely different sets of ethics. Right? Those outside the church are appealing to a different set of laws and principles than those inside the church. And this is logically problematic if we were to try to mix the two, right? Let me put it this way. If you fired me, speaking of work, if you fired me um, and I was concerned that there was wrongful termination of employment and I decided to sue you for wrongful termination from a court in Canada, that would be absurd. If I cited some Canadian law that you broke, that you'd, you'd just probably laugh me off. Why? Because we're in the United States, Right? And the reason this is absurd is not because it's not wrong to wrongfully terminate lawsuits, but it's that the laws of the two lands will operate completely differently. The court system is completely different. The penal system is completely different. And so those cases will be dealt with differently based on where you are. 
put it this way, when I was a kid, we weren't allowed to have video games at home. So we didn't have a video game console. We had a little computer in the main living area. And uh, every now and then I'd get to go play computer games at my friend's house. Um, and one time he let me borrow, we played this game called Red Alert. I don't know if you've ever heard of Red Alert. It's, it's an awesome game. Uh, there's a red disc and a blue disc. And one day he lent me the red disc um, and I brought it home. And his mom said, yeah, it's okay. You can borrow it. Just make sure you bring it back. So I got home and I started playing this game in my living room with the kitchen area kind of living kitchen area. Uh, And my mom got in and she was mad. And what I said to her, you can imagine, oh, Ben's mom said that I could borrow it. My mom's response wasn't, oh, that's okay. Great. I'm glad she gave you permission because you're her son, right? No, she said, I am your mom. This house is my house. And you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're not going to ask for permission from someone else's mom. It was She probably said it in much stronger terms than that, actually. Um, But but you see the absurdity, right? Paul says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? It's absurd. By this point, the Corinthians probably had their tails between their legs. Right at the beginning of verse five, Paul says, I say this to your shame. And this is striking because it's actually the opposite of what Paul had said back in chapter four. Verse 14, back then, Paul said, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Thanks, Paul. But here he says, I write this to your shame. This is the Paul who said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, what's the big deal here? Why is Paul saying this? What's going on is that this practice of taking one another to court is so contrary to their identity as Christians that Paul is willing to drive them towards shame if that's gonna make it possible for them to see the enormity of the, of the reproach they're bringing on the name of Christ, right? The enormity of the offense. This is a huge deal. Verse six, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Not only are brothers getting to the point of lawsuits with one another, which is itself problematic, but they're doing it before outsiders. God's desire, remember, is to bring outsiders in. The insider-outsider language is not exclusive for the purpose of exclusion. It's exclusive for the purpose of welcoming people into the kingdom of God. God's desire is to bring outsiders in and his plan for reaching those outsiders is the church going forth, demonstrating the sacrificial love of God through their unity and their holiness. But instead of demonstrating love, unity, holiness, the Corinthians are demonstrating disunity, selfishness, injustice as they wrong and defraud one another. Instead of modeling the forgiving grace of Christ with one another, They're insisting on their own rights. They're repaying evil with more evil and their eyes are on their own kingdoms rather than on God's. You see, bless you. You see, for Paul, lawsuits at all are already a defeat. Look at verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, even if we were to form some sort of Christian court system within the church, and deal with these issues between Christians in this Christian court that we were to establish. Even if we were to do that, this would also only be a concession because this shouldn't happen at all. Why? Matthew 18, which Taylor talked about a few weeks ago, uh, I think, is where Jesus himself gives a clear pattern for how to deal with when you, get, you are sinned against, when we sin against one another within the church. Matthew 18, Jesus gives a clear pattern. Begins with this, step one, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first thing that must be done is a private face-to-face address of a person who sins against you. If you move beyond this step, that's already a moral failure. 
according to Jesus, according to Paul. A defeat, as Paul would call it, right? If you have to move on to welcoming another into the process, that's because the person has already failed to listen. There is disunity there as a result of sin. What Paul is not saying, listen, let me clarify. What Paul is not saying is that they will never wrong one another. Paul's not saying that you will never need to reconcile with one another. Of course, until we're inhabiting our resurrection bodies, until we are in the new heavens and new earth free from sin, we will continue to wrestle with sin and we will continue to sin against one another. That's true. And of course, these sins will need to be reconciled. You can't just ignore wrongdoing. But the way that we deal with this reconciliation has been made clear for us. We approach one another. And with the gospel at the heart, of the process. We pursue reconciliation out of love for the purpose of restoration. As Jesus said, for the purpose of gaining our brother, gaining our sister. What we see happening in Corinth is therefore particularly lamentable. They're not only taking each other to court, they're taking each other to court outside the church with little regard for what this is going to make the cause of Christ look like before these outsiders. And so the word here in verse 7 probably should be translated. I saw one commentator say this should should be translated total moral failure rather than defeat. That probably captures the nuance of what Paul is talking about much better. And the end of verse seven, I think, really gets at the heart of what Paul's trying to say. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying, why would you not rather be like Christ? If you think about it, Christ was wronged big time, right? He was falsely accused. What did he do when he was falsely accused? Did he slap his accusers with a libel suit for defamation? Did he even speak in his own defense? No. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. The hymn goes. Later on, Paul himself goes to talk about rights, and he talks about letting go of rights. In 1 Corinthians 9, it's a passage you may be familiar with. He says, I became all things to all people that by all means, some might be saved. Paul says this, he says, I have made no use of any of my rights for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. (laughs) Wow, he'd rather die than to to, to bring reproach on the name of Christ. To the, you know, and he goes on, he says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. I became all things to all people that by all means I might stick up for my own rights. No, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake, he finishes, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings with others. Do you hear Paul's heart here? Of all the things that could be goals in our lives, and they're not necessarily bad things, But of all the things that could be goals in our lives, the primary goal must remain in clear view. The primary purpose for your life and mine, the primary reason we are still alive in this world is the ministry of reconciliation. Seeing lost human beings in our families, in our our neighborhoods, in in our workplaces, come to know the Lord, be reconciled to God. Our primary goal in this life is not money, it's not safety, not a loving relationship with a spouse. It's not even justice. That's not our primary reason for being alive right now. Our primary goal is gospel fruit. All that we do, even when it means sacrificing our own well-being, 
is so that we might share the gospel in the kingdom with others, even and perhaps especially those who run us. Right, what Paul is imploring with them to see is this, there's something more important than your rights and your well-being. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And asking these questions, Paul makes his point. Wouldn't you rather be wronged and defrauded if it meant that someone would see your love for them and your trust in God and maybe even come to faith as a result? <laughs> Wouldn't you rather be stepped on if it meant that Christ's name could be lifted on high, right? It's clear that up to this point, the Corinthians wouldn't rather do these things, right? They'd rather wrong and defraud if it meant that they could get something for themselves out of it. Their priorities were misaligned. And so where Paul turns from here is interesting. Look at verse nine. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul's talking about the witness of the church being threatened by these silly lawsuits trivial suits. And then he turns and gives this list of all kinds of sins and says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's Paul doing here? Seems like a little bit of a left turn. Here's what he's not doing, I think. Paul, in listing all of these sins, is not listing them as qualifications for getting into heaven. Right? Paul, it hasn't been talking about these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of heaven, just so that he can hear, go and tell the Corinthians, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, look at this list of things, don't do any of these things, and then you'll be good. That's not what Paul is doing here. What I think Paul is doing here is using this list as a way of showing them something. He's showing them that there is a change that happens when someone is transferred from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven, and that this results in a completely different kind of life. Verse 11. Paul says, and such were some of you. Some of you used to do these things. Let me pause for a moment. I think this wording bears, bears a pause. Some of you is important. Uh, here's why. Some of these people were faithful Jews who had come to, come to faith in Jesus. Some of these people were Christians who grew up. They, they never, they, if you had asked them, they would probably ask, ask the question, answer the question. They'd say, I never remember a day that I didn't know the Lord. And so they never lived their lives characterized by these sins. Right? You do not need to read this list and say, oh yeah, this is me. This is all of us. This list is about a lifestyle of practice. It's one thing to be tempted regularly and another to give into temptation regularly. It's one thing to give into temptation a time or two. It's another to make a practice of sinning. I've heard people say, oh yes, this list describes all of us. No, it doesn't. That's not what Paul is getting at here. You might be tempted to swindle others. You might have even swindled someone before, but unless you live a life of swindling others, Paul is not including you in this list. So let's release that pressure for just a moment. But let me say this before moving on. If you do make a practice of any of these things, Paul is saying this is a big deal. If you do make a practice of any of these things, confess, live in the light. It's time to go to war, brother, sister. If you have a practice in your life of adultery, if you have a practice in your life of a homosexual lifestyle, of swindling others, of indulging greed, of grasping constantly for things, and you're not currently at war with everything at your disposal, I want you to know that your house is on fire. It's time to call 911 and welcome in your brothers and sisters to fight these sins. Right? You might need to give up your internet connected devices for a time as you go to battle against your pornography addiction. You might need to quit your job, sell your house, or do something else drastic if your heart is mired in greed. 
and, and, and building my own kingdom. You might not need to do these things, but you might. And listen, there's nothing that you have right now, nothing that you have right now that is worth holding onto at the expense of your soul. What benefit is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? Those are the words of Jesus. Paul's list here might be eye-opening for you. You do not need to see it as a checklist to get you into heaven and doubt your salvation. This is not Paul's goal here. Neither, however, do you need to just explain it away and ignore Paul's warning. The people who practice these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We know that this means that people who live lives practicing these things simply have not surrendered their lives to God. And what Paul is pointing to is that there is real change experienced by those who are brought into the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed, your sins were dealt with, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were brought out of the world, you were set apart, made, uh, made fit for the task that God has given to you. You were justified. God looked at you and on account of Christ, God said, our relationship is right. You are righteous. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul says this in past tense, which is important to note. You were washed. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, this is true of you. Right? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Therefore, you're not these people. You, you're not like the people who practice these things. So, so stop looking like you are. More importantly, though, these are passive verbs. Right? Like Taylor said when he was reading it. These are passive. You were washed. You were sanctified. Paul doesn't say, uh, you went out and washed yourselves and now God is pleased with you. He doesn't say, you sanctified yourself. You, were, you made sure that you were justified by God. That's not what it is here. To illustrate, when you're cleaning a baby, uh, Taylor put it this way the other day, when you're cleaning a baby, you're the one who's cleaning that baby. That baby is not cleaning themselves. In fact, they usually make it harder on you. I have two of them right now. They usually make it harder on you while you're bathing them to bathe them. But it is clear that there is an active party and a passive party in the bath time in our household, um, in bath time. And so similar with these things, there's an active party and a passive party. The active party is not you. The active party is God. You were washed. You were sanctified. Sometimes our best efforts at trying to do those things are just like a little baby in the water, making it, doing the opposite of being helpful. And here's what Paul's getting at. He says, you used to be of the world. Right? He's basically saying, you used to be of the world. You used to be in pursuit of all these things. And God, by his grace, yanked you out of the world, raised you from death to life, and transferred you from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? And now with new eyes, with new lives, right, you can see what, the, the, that what is in the world's eyes as fair and just might not actually be truly fair and just. What should be right and wrong according to the kingdom of the world is not necessarily right and wrong in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I mean. Many people in the world, even non-Christians, would look at this list and say, of course those things are terrible, right? They'd look at this list and say, those are, those are bad. They'd probably take issue with a couple of them. I know a couple of them they would. Um, wish we had time to go into them. But anyone in the world today, if you look closer, wouldn't actually have as big of a problem with the things that they might think they have problems with. I'll give just two examples. People might say, oh, of course adultery is wrong. You shouldn't cheat on your spouse. But sex out of wedlock might be better to try before you buy. 
I was told this as a kid. Premarital sex is not that big of a deal. It's once you're married that this, the, the adultery thing becomes bad. Second example, people might say, of course, defrauding people is wrong. Just a bad word, fraud. Never, never a good thing, fraud, right? Um, but hypocrisy, yeah, it's bad. I know hypocrisy is bad, but sometimes it can be helpful, actually, to say what people want to hear rather than the truth. White lies, white lies have a good place in anyone's life. No, they don't. <laughs> now, there's more examples, but you see, what, what, when applying what Paul's been talking about, he's been talking about these petty lawsuits. Specifically, this, you know, they're, they're struggling with greed. Really, the issue of, of all, within this list, the issue that they're struggling with, they're defrauding one another, and they're greedy people. They're grabbing for more, more, more. They're going to these unjust, uh, the, the, these courts run by people where they know that they're going to get the victory if they're rich. Right? And, it's, and it's a greed issue. They feel that they've been wronged, and so they're focused, so focused on exacting justice from the person who wronged them that they miss the gospel entirely. That's the problem. They're still living in accordance with the wisdom of the world, which says that when you're wrong, you need to go out and ensure that that wrong is righted. The wisdom of the world says what's yours is yours, and it must be protected and held onto, even if other people have to pay for it. But Paul says you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. You have been removed from the ways of this world. You have been brought into the kingdom of God in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God. You have a totally different system of allegiance. You have different priorities, different ways of pursuing those priorities. You've been given a new heart, new eyes, a new mind, Philippians 2. You've been given the mind of Christ. When Paul says in verse seven, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That sounds foolish. Right? It's, it sounds like we're conceding to injustice rather than pursuing justice, which we're supposed to do, right, as Christians. It's clear that we should care about justice. To be clear, justice is a good thing. Right? Our desire for justice isn't a wrong desire. We do need to be pursuing justice. We just do so in the context of a different economy. The economy of the kingdom is not an economy of injustice. The economy of the kingdom is an economy that paradoxically, through humble submission, conquers injustice so that true justice can roll down like a river from heaven, not from you. The purpose of our engagement with others is the salvation of their souls, not exacting judgment from them. God will do that. We love others in such a way that their souls might be saved. This is not an economy of injustice. It is often an economy, though, of delayed justice. We don't endorse injustice. We don't leave injustice unaddressed with one another. Matthew 18, we approach our brothers and sisters who sin against us. We engage those things, however, with a mindset informed by the kingdom of God, trusting that the most important thing right now is not justice now. The most important thing is the salvation of souls. And in the end, justice belongs to God. And we can rest assured that justice will be served in every, each and every situation. Should I rather suffer wrong than see justice served? Sounds so backwards, but it is exactly what Christ did on the cross. On the cross. What Christ did turned the justice of the world completely on its head. Could it be? Could it be that submitting to injustice could actually be the means by which true justice is obtained? Apparently so. 
God himself, Christ, faced the greatest injustice of all time. And rather than insisting on his own way, rather than availing himself of the right that he had as God to condemn every human being to hell for all eternity, rather than doing that, he set aside his rights. He faced the injustice that was before him. And rather than hitting it on the head, he was struck. And as he did so, he flipped the world upside down, bringing about true, gracious, loving justice. This is not ignoring justice. It is transcending justice with costly, loving mercy. And that's the gospel. That's the economy of the kingdom. As I close, two things. There's a lot that could be said. Two things that I want to leave us with. First, um, lest we talk about these, these high things and forget what Paul's actually talking about. It's clear that a real concern for Paul in this first half of 1 Corinthians 6 is that some means of retaining arbitration in real issues of justice should, be, should remain in Christian hands. And it's clear that Paul, is, des, Paul desires that we see the, the importance of dealing with these things within the church. As loving parents discipline children, so too do loving brothers and sisters discipline one another. We're called to deal with many things inside the church. Covenant members, in your membership covenant, you commit to dealing with internal issues through a process called mediation in accordance with our bylaws. When we're welcomed into these issues and we are made aware of them as your leaders, we will walk you in this direction in keeping with Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 6. At any time, you are free to pursue outside legal action. We will never force you into a process of mediation, nor will we force you to remain a member of our church against your will. But we will emphatically call you to Christian obedience and faithfulness to God's word. Let me give a couple of examples. A murder case uh, will be brought before the governing authorities. These are small claims courts that Paul is talking about, not criminal cases. Romans 13 gives some clear expectations that we are to have of civil governing authorities and the purpose of police and law enforcement and so forth. So murder trials will be brought before governing authorities. A civil case of monetary dispute on the other hand, such as if one of you is a tenant and the other is a landlord and you're disputing, you know, unpaid rent or lease terms, like those are things that we would seek to mediate within the church. They're real issues of justice, but they're civil cases. To give a more nuanced example, an issue of sexual sin between two Christians at our church will be dealt with depending on its nature. Just two examples of that. If a person is sexually abused, while we will address it, along with any other sin from a church discipline perspective for the purpose of repentance and restoration, that is a criminal offense that we will report to the governing authorities. Sexual abuse is a criminal offense. If a married man or woman, on the other hand, is sinned against by their spouse committing adultery, we will address that in the form of church discipline because the law of the land right now doesn't hold adultery as a criminal offense. So we will seek to deal with its ramifications internally with a purpose of pursuing reconciliation and restoration. Right? There's a lot of other examples that could be given, but suffice it to say this, the first thing I want us to leave us with is that Paul is clear. We should keep in the hands of the church what remains, what, what belongs in the hands of the church as we deal with things with each other. We will sin against one another. I will sin against you. You will sin against me. And we're called to deal with that and reconcile that, but we can deal with them with great hope trusting that as we walk in faithfulness to this, God will bear fruit with the gospel. And the second thing that I want to leave us with is this. A, a right understanding of the kingdom and the kingdom in which you dwell 
is essential to our witness as the church. Rightly understanding where your allegiance is and what is most important is crucial. It's crucial for understanding what the Christian life means, brothers and sisters. Let me put it this way. Are you harboring anger or unforgiveness right now? Many of you might be. Are you harboring anger or unforgiveness? Let us not misunderstand forgiveness. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness, nor is it acceptance of anything less than justice. Forgiveness involves placing trust in God, placing the weight of justice on God's shoulders and extending the hand of fellowship to someone who did not just make a mistake, but sinned against us on purpose. Are you harboring anger or unforgiveness? How about this? Have you ever truly forgiven someone? Or have you just tried to not think about things? Some of us will need to do work with the Lord for the sake of others right now as a result of this text. Some of us need to do work with the Lord even before we get to others. Do you know Jesus? Have you received, have you received forgiveness for your sins? If you don't know Jesus, this process will probably be a waste of time for you. This process of pursuing reconciliation, church discipline, Matthew 18, it'll probably be a waste of time, but let your desire for justice drive you to the cross. Let that drive you to God. Your desire for justice is not unfounded. Don't fall into the trap of believing forgiveness is forgetfulness, even for your own sin. Just because you've forgotten doesn't mean that God has forgotten. But when we approach God's throne asking for mercy, he is pleased and faithful to give us mercy when we ask. This will take our community. This will take wise people in our church speaking into our lives, pursuing true forgiveness, true reconciliation, true restoration of relationships. But we get to engage with this uh, with each other and, and be a part of this with others. Charge in. When you see anger and resentment in your brother or sister, charge in. Speak truth with grace and love. When you see someone angry, ask them about it, right? Validate their experience of injustice. Ask them how they would bring this to the Lord and walk them with that, walk through them with that. Ask them to pray right now, right? Charge in, trust Christ with one another. We have a real part to play in this story, but God is the author and God is at work even when you are not. Exacting justice from people who offend you is not in your hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You can take faith in that. And our greatest desire can be that God's repayment for the person who's offended us would have fallen on Christ because our greatest desire gets to be for the salvation of all those around us. So what is, the, what is it? You know, for the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, it was these lawsuits that, that was a reflection of the fact that they didn't understand their kingdom citizenship. What is it for you and me? What is it that's quenching our witness in the world? Is it pride is it greed? Is it sexual sin? What ways does the kingdom of this world still have its tentacles wrapped around your heart? Repent, sisters. Go to war with these things. Today is the day of salvation and know that you don't need to fix everything today. I'm gonna to borrow from Omar Calderon, uh, who's, a, who's the man who, who spoke, one of the men who spoke at our men's retreat a couple weeks ago. He said, it's like walking into a house. The process of restoration in your life is, is like walking into a house. All the lights are off. There's a lot of light switches. You don't need to go turn on all the light switches at once. Today, go pick one. Walk over to it and turn it on. One thing at a time, trusting 
that the Lord is faithful. And be encouraged. This is the last thing that I will say. Be encouraged. Some of us are newly naturalized citizens of heaven. And some of us live like newly naturalized citizens of heaven. Immigrants in a new land take a while to get used to the laws and ways that things work in the land. That's to be expected in the kingdom of God as well. You are, you are new creations and we spend the rest of our lives working out our salvation, working out what it means to be citizens of this kingdom. So be encouraged. You are not perfect, but God your heavenly father who is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure increasingly more over the course of your whole life. God is perfect and he is faithful and he will bring this work that he started in you, brothers and sisters, to completion. We trust him. Let me pray for us.